Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Guys, today I'm excited to have a personal mentor, somebody that has looked very highly for his work, uh, his, his legacy as an investor, as an entrepreneur, Robin Klein. Um, Robin has had a notable history both as an operator, as an investor, as a friend, and as the godfather of the European ecosystem. And today I want to get into the, the nitty gritty of his life, um, some of the experiences that have led to his now very notable experience as an investor and some of the amazing advice that he gives founders to the point where, you know, rumor has it founders will seek him out individually as a person because of that, um, to the point of perhaps uh, creating a, a big inbox for you to have to chase after. So thanks for coming. Robin, it's a pleasure having you here. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. So the first question always is about you know, the humble beginnings of the man. Uh, what was the first thing that you did after you graduated and what did you study? I studied engineering, uh, did my bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. And I went on to do a master's in uh, industrial engineering. So essentially that's about manufacturing. And I've always loved factories actually. It's one of the reasons why I don't run away from hardware products is I, I've actually spent some time in factories. So uh, my first job was with a firm of consulting engineers and essentially we designed the electrical installations of major buildings, large blocks of flats, shopping centers and so on. Um, I was there for a year. It was pretty boring once I kind of mastered it. Um, and uh, But I had the sort of entrepreneurial itch and I really wanted to get into, into manufacture. So my next job was with a large manufacturing company. And uh, I had done as a master's uh, thesis, uh, digital inventory control systems. I'm talking about the era of punched cards. Mm. Uh, you, you won't remember those, but you probably won't remember <laughs> IBM 360s. But uh, basically uh, I designed and developed a a system for controlling inventory in, in, in factories using uh, punch cards and using computers. And I built that uh, job around my thesis, or I built the thesis around the job, whichever way mm. uh, you, you look at it. And did that become a spin-off into a company, or did you think about that? No. No. No, it wasn't. These were very early days of computing, and they were mostly used for accounting. In fact, this, this company, which was a a licensee of Westinghouse um, had a, a large computer which is only used for accounting. So I was the first to kind of suggest why don't we try and use this for uh, um, uh, for inventory control. But uh, this was way before personal computers and thinking about building a business around that just didn't enter my head. Mm. That, that must have been very... Uh like you look back and maybe there's an opportunity that you missed, but maybe you can share with us kind of what, what happened there? Like, was, was that the beginning of maybe where you decided that you didn't want to be an engineer anymore or would that itch continue? You know, if I can indulge in a little bit of a sort of a personal history, I'd say that, you know, my, my father was an engineer and he always worked for a large company. And like many sons, I thought my father was brilliant. I thought he had really built this company 
he landed up as managing director of this engineering company, but he didn't own one share in it. So he was an employee. Those were the days of capital and labor, and he was labor, if you like. And it just, I, I think that sort of really burned inside me. I always felt that somehow one should have some ownership of, of something that you, you know, devote your life to. Mm-hmm. And I think that got, gave me the spur to become an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. which I did become when I was uh, 25. 25. Mm. And what was the idea? Well, it wasn't my idea. Basically, I got to a point where I had to make a decision either to do an MBA uh, in the States. I haven't mentioned, but I was born in South Africa and my degrees were in in South Africa and those early jobs I mentioned were there. Um, And I got accepted to the Sloan School at MIT and that was a very attractive option. Or had the opportunity to buy into a what was essentially a little workshop uh, that I'd heard about where two partners had fallen out and one partner wanted to sell and, and so on. And so um, took some advice uh, from an early mentor who ran a big uh, accounting firm. And he said, uh, you know, how much are you going to spend you know, what are you going to invest in this business? I didn't have the money anyway, but, you know, I was going to borrow a tiny amount of money. He said, that's less than the MBA will cost, and I think you'll probably learn more. And so I made the decision to acquire 50% of what was, at the time, a, as I say, a workshop making uh, electrical appliances, tabletop appliances, kettles, toasters. It was called Berda, B-E-R-D-A. Mm-hmm. It was named after the founders Berkowitz and Davis mm. and as I say they'd fallen out and Davis wanted to get out and he gave me great terms to to buy his share and went on to build that into a a pretty decent sized business which uh, then sold to come to the UK uh, age 29 so I kind of made some money at that point and it felt good and it coincided with leaving South Africa, which at the time I really wanted to do. I was married. I had two kids, and uh, one of whom is Saul, uh, Saul Klein, whose name is probably known certainly amongst our little our little uh, network. Um, and uh, brought him and his sister and my wife, obviously, to come come to the UK. And that was in 1976. So, with with regards to that early business where you bought out somebody, you know, today you deal with all sorts of issues, uh, helping founders overcome founders that are leaving, you know, judging from that experience that you had in buying out another co-founder and then kind of blending in with a team that already existed, what advice do you have maybe just piggybacking off of that for founders who are considering a management change or, or potentially trying to buy out one of their co-founders or potentially need to get rid of a co-founder just as an aggregate of all your experience to date? It's one of the toughest things that uh, that happens to a startup. And it happens with more regularity than one, one would think. Um, and, you know, what one looks for at that time is a, a quick resolution to the, to the problem. Because the problem can start to infect. It's like a virus within, within a company. Everybody knows even even if there are only five of you or if there are 30 of you or 50 of you, 
you can be quite sure that if the two, if the founders aren't getting on, whether it's two or three or whatever, then everybody knows pretty soon, and it just doesn't make for efficiency or productivity or or drive towards a common goal because people start to sense that there isn't a common goal. Mm. And I, and I guess the, the, the rule for me has been not just with that kind of problem, but openness solves a lot of problems. Talking about how you feel, you know, um, we, it's well known that women tend to be better at it than men. But it's something that I think people, entrepreneurs need to learn how to do, talk about how they feel. And if they feel things are not working, they need to talk about it and try and resolve it. But you can only give it so much time. And then if it's unresolved, you have to come to the conclusion that it's just not going to work. And then dismantling becomes extremely difficult. I was an investor and shareholder um, in a successful company called Agent Provocateur. Mm. And I can talk about this because it was pretty public. Mm. The falling out that the two founders, who were husband and wife, mm-hmm. had was in, on the front pages of, uh, of the newspapers. It was pretty ugly. Recognizing that there was a split and that the company couldn't function with the two of them, that was the easy part. The difficult part was coming to some agreement as to how we would resolve it. And in the end, the only solution was to sell the company, which actually nobody wanted to do. It was sold successfully from an investor's point of view, but could have gone on to become, you know, a lot greater. Mm-hmm. And since since they left and we sold, the, the company's been through some pretty hard times. Mm. And there's an openness there that's that's interesting to explore a little deeper. There's openness founder to founder. So what is our alignment? You know, are we aligned? And we've had founders that have come to us, let's say, after a pivot and said, you know what, I'm not interested in this B2B. I was interested in B2C and I, I don't want to stick around anymore. And they leave, you know, in a, in a very sort of uh, collaborative way. But there's other circumstances where the relationship is with an investor and a founder. Do you encourage that kind of openness or do you see, you know, you've been a founder yourself, do you see that there is a risk there that openness can also be used against the founder? And I think a lot of founders are apprehensive about investors and they tend to perhaps maybe overly or vilify investors but in your experience like where is the sort of margin of, of safety if you will in, in openness between a founder and an investor i think it's about a, building a relationship a relationship of trust and uh and therefore if without openness it is it's hard to build a relationship of trust because the minute one party and this goes for all relationships one party suspects that the other is not being open, then the trust diminishes. Without the trust, nothing really functions very well. But talking for our own investment philosophy, um, and you know, you know, fast forward to Local Globe, but it, it has applied all the way back to when I first started investing, which was only 20 years ago, was... Um, yeah, because there's a period before then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've had a 50-year career. So, you know, less than half the time has been investing. Um, it's um, the, the, the philosophy that we've adopted, and it's our number one sort of value. We've set out our values, and our number one is we never forget that the company is owned by the founders and that we 
are part of the support team. And we like to be thought of as sort of quasi-founders if we're investing early enough. And therefore, that openness is not almost not between investor and, and founder. If the founder determined to do something, we don't agree with it. We tell them, but at the end of the day, it's their decision. We have never, ever, nor will we ever use a document, a contract to say, you have to do this because we, we know what's right. Because mm. the truth is we don't. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're as often wrong as founders are. So we just have a different perspective and hopefully our perspective is respected mm. and hopefully our voice is heard and internalized. But if it's not, the, you know, by then we say we've lost. Mm. And as seed investors, we're used to losing. We lose companies, it's sad, but we do. Mm. And... Uh, if we don't, if we weren't to lose, we wouldn't be taking sufficient risk. And mm. our job is to is to take risk. So you took a big risk. You moved to the UK. Yeah. And, um, that that was an interesting experience. You've moved. Yeah, I to moved. The UK. I moved, but uh, you know, I think. Well, actually, I would say Latin America and South Africa probably have a lot in common in terms of moving to the UK. Yeah. But what was what was your reason then? I mean, I, you had sold your company, and, and South Africa was in a very difficult place politically. Mm. It was at the heart, uh, the height, I should say, of the apartheid era. It was something that was always uncomfortable, and so from the time I kind of left university I always had in my mind that I would leave at some time and after my kids were born then I was definitely sure I was I was going to go because I just couldn't see uh, a resolution you know as it turned out it was a very peaceful revolution uh, but that I, I couldn't foresee uh, so I'd always when wanted to. you here was it like the the sort of the, the, the three-day typical two suitcases kind of Arrival, or was it more like there was a network and I you came, already had a? I came to a position because okay. the last company, the company that I described, mm. but I sold the company mm. to come to the UK, and very fortunately, the company that had bought it, which was a public company in mm. South Africa, had a small okay. branch here, and I came to run that and be a shareholder of that, and I landed up buying that business from them uh, mm. later on. So then, what, so far, so that transition from that point of yeah. view was reasonably e easy, yeah. but it was a bad time to come here. This was mm. like three day week stuff, yeah. I, you know that you, you'll only read in the history mm. books. But anybody who lived through that here, it was the time of you know great union power and mm. and so on. So mm. it was a very interesting time to come. But also as a founder, uh, you know, running this small small company, um, you know my access to resource was quite limited you know I, I used to spend time going through yellow pages to find you know a printer or a whatever other resource I needed you know I didn't have a network uh, I, I had to build it up hmm. so during that first two three years when you were here in the UK did you start exploring your next move from an entrepreneurial point of view or was mostly just settling in and then well, remember, I come to a company that where I was a shareholder mm -hmm. and um, managing director. I'm talking about a very, very small company doing, mm -hmm. you know, less than a million pounds of, of, of revenue. Mm -hmm. But it was an established company. Mm -hmm. It was a team of, of people. So I felt 
that I was what I am, an entrepreneur. I didn't feel like I was on any kind of job. Um, but um, but I, I still had to build the network from, from scratch. Mm. We, you know, we today we, we're spoiled. We, you know, we have all the tools. Mm. We, we talked about LinkedIn. LinkedIn. <laughs> These things didn't exist. Yeah, and so all right. So then that that grew, and you know, as we know from you know things you've done, and eventually ended up in Arcadia before you became an investor. What was the transition from from where you were in your original? Arrival here in the UK to sort of when you started investing. Basically, two businesses that I that I grew and sold each of those. Mm. Uh, the first one that I ca- came to, mm. uh, which was called Sultan, I sold when we were doing about twelve million of revenue. We were over trading like crazy. We had a very thin balance sheet. There was no such thing as venture capital, and I just couldn't live with the the debt. Uh, that I had hung around my neck, so sold to a public company uh, and stayed with them, joined their board, stayed with them for two years, then left and joined another another business called Innovations, which was a catalogue business. And Innovations really, I guess, launched me into uh, the web. So Innovations was a catalogue which sold products which were, we, we call them, tomorrow's products today. Mm. So it was like stuff you didn't see on the high street. It was in a catalog. When the web came along, it was like a very natural thing for us to evolve to. And uh, so Innovations did the very first e-commerce transaction in the UK. That was in May 1995. And uh, it was, uh, it went public. Um, when, then we tried to tra- take it private. We were outbid. We sold to the Arcadia Group. That's how I landed up at Arcadia, and uh, that was the second time, I suppose, uh, that I joined a very large company. And I spent two years full time there. Very happy years, I must say. Mm. That transition from entrepreneur to corporate uh, individual was—it was an exciting time. It was the beginning of the web. Um, I probably knew more about the web within Arcadia, so was given tremendous amount of resource, and you know built the the uh, the first websites for Topshop and the, and Burton and all the brands, Dorothy Perkins, etc., that were in the Arcadia group. So I had a great time, and then left there, stayed on part time to uh, uh, to chair some. Uh, um, joint ventures, which which they which I'd set up uh, while I was there, uh, but then left to uh, do my own thing, and that's when I started to invest initially as an angel. And that was when it was officially called Tag. But did that come afterwards? Yeah, I mean, it was. It was at that time we loosely called Saul was. I think he was in the U.S. at the time. I was here. We were angel investing. Uh, you know, it was, was essentially a family investment uh, company, and we uh, we just styled ourselves the the Accelerator Group, and that's what TAG stood for. T A G was yeah. was TAG. Just before before the word Accelerator was defined, so it's kind yeah. of an ironic kind of uh, <laughs> full circle, which yeah. we'll get to when we talk to Local Globe. Um, but if we look back at those years, sort of everything from when, when you were first an entrepreneur in South Africa to the moment you were 
an employee of Arcadia, you know, through that long process, you know, what were the low points? What were the, what was like, was there one or two low points where you were just like, you know, I, I, I can't do this anymore. This is just, yeah, this is pointless. Like, I mean, you mentioned loosely the whole debt thing, but you know, anything that was, was well, that was really hard to live with. And that was, uh, the company was, was doing well. But, um, and this is a, another reason why I guess I'm not afraid of hardware. And by the way, this is no advert. We're not looking for hardware <laughs> investments by any means because they are tough. But um, when, when you're in a business that has inventory and has debtors, the working capital demands are enormous. And the faster you grow, the more your balance sheet requires equity mm. or debt. Mm-hmm. And because equity wasn't available, or at least I certainly didn't know yeah, well, where to get expensive. it. Probably. I mean, there weren't, there weren't such things as venture capital. There was, you know, 3i was just beginning mm. and they were investing in well-established, very profitable cash generative uh, management buyouts was basically where, where they were focused. But venture capital didn't, didn't really exist. But banks were, you know, banks were happy to give you overdraft, but that overdraft just kept growing and growing, and that that was really a low. It's hard to sleep, frankly, when that when that happens. Um, but you know, another low point, and this is a, a slightly longer anecdote, and I don't know how how uh, interested your listeners are going to be. No, they're this, very interested. If I downloaded it and they've gone this far, they're probably pretty interested. <laughs> okay, well, I got fired. Got yeah, I got fired Good. by the company that bought that bought uh, Salton. Uh, I had a three-year contract as part of the deal, mm. which probably was a mistake. It was too long a contract. Mm. And after two years, this is a public company, but it was pretty much controlled by a, a family, mm. and there were only three of us on the on the public company board. And after about two years at a board meeting, I said to the other two. One of who's the chairman, chief executive, and major owner of the company. Look, uh, my contract comes to an end uh, at the end of this year. I think we should start planning for succession uh, because we've done pretty well. And you know, they integrated my business in theirs. I ran the London office, the head office was in Manchester, and so on. And you know, they were they were shocked and they said, but. But why? You know, things are going so well and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, I, I said, look, guys, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I can't, you know, here I'm, I, yes, it's been good, but uh, I'm on a job here. Um, so they, they, they said, well, okay, go, go and drop a plan for this. But I could see they were very upset, hurt and annoyed. Uh, this wasn't part of their plan. They expected me, me to stay. I uh, Almost the next day, it might have been the next week, I went away on holiday and I got a call from my secretary to say there were a bunch of people emptying out my office. And uh, I got a, I then got a letter from them, no email, uh, I got a letter from them saying that, uh, you know, I had, uh, I'd been talking to the, the industry about the fact that I was going to leave and this brought the company into disrepute. It was a total pack of lies, mm-hmm. but that was it. I was fired. I was out. And uh, I had to, I had to actually sue the company because, uh, you know, just for my, 
for what they for the had package, yeah. for the package. So I guess they were just trying to get clean of the package and not necessarily yeah, and you, hoping that you wouldn't fight it. Yeah, and it, unfortunately, this was the style of the company, and this is the kind of thing that that they did, and so which actually brings up a good point, which is maybe worth exploring, which is uh, founders post acquisition and integrating into companies. You know, what advice you have there? You know, I've, I've spoken to several of our companies that have and founders who have gotten acquired, and one of the things sometimes they say is. You know, any pipe dream that you have of a three-year earnout is pipe dream because it's too far, and there's so many things that will go wrong that you might as well just either take the cash for a one-year or two-year max. But then at the same time, the acquirer wants some visibility on that person operationalizing the integration over the course of a longer period of time. What advice do you have? How do you how do you help founders with, with that thinking? Well, I, you know, I had two experiences: the one that I just described, and then the one with Arcadia, which was a very good experience. Mm. A really good experience. I really enjoyed it. And although it was time to move on as an entrepreneur, the attitude I had and what I, what I remember saying to the whole team when, when we decided to sell was treat this as a real learning opportunity. And it's, it's kind of my lifelong watchword is keep learning. Mm. You know, you're going to join a larger company. Mm. Don't dismiss them because, you know, they're large, they're corporate, they move slowly or whatever. They've also got some strengths and learn about those because one day you'll want to build a really big company. So learn and enjoy the time with them. And I think I think that I went into that second experience with a much better attitude. Um, so most people said to me you're not going to last there it's a huge company you'll get lost there you'll get so frustrated you're an entrepreneur um i think that happens to a lot of entrepreneurs i think you've got to know yourself how adaptable are you can you adapt to it's a cultural thing this isn't this isn't necessarily a financial thing and it makes perfect sense that someone buying your company where you're really important to the company will want uh, will want an earnout. So my advice would be, um, if you feel there's a decent cultural fit, if you like the individuals, if there's chemistry, if the chemistry is good between the buyer and yourself, then throw yourself into it a hundred percent as if it was still your business and that you really care about the outcome because you're. Your reputation is also dependent on how you behave during uh, that period. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's only two years of your life or whatever it's going to be. So you'll have learnt a lot. You'll have built a whole lot of new contacts and networks. Mm. And it'll stand you in really good stead. Mm. But if you go in thinking, you know, these guys are going to screw me, then you're probably selling to the wrong people anyway. Mm. It's a good point. Now, one thing that you brought up was the communication that you had with your employees and your colleagues. Um, there's a book I'm reading, which I'm drawing a blank on the name right now, but it talks about the story of a submariner, uh, one of the captains in a submarine, and how he, there were two leadership styles. One of the leadership styles that was sort of the, the vintage leadership style of the military, which is top-down leadership, which you know you see in some organizations to, today still. And then he was one of a more decentralized he was promoting like a more decentralized decision making, and he said it's more appropriate for careers and, and jobs where there's a, a more of a cognitive output rather than a sort of labor-based output. What is your experience with startups that you've mentored and, and sort of chaired 
but also in your experience as, as founder and, and, and exec chair and, and, and CEO of what is best today and what kind of, how do you coach leadership within the top management and how did you, what was your coaching style like and leadership style? I think that uh, there's a lot written about and talked about the culture. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can invent a culture. I really don't. Um, today we're talking about building uh, companies with really smart people. Mm. You know, this is uh, building a startup today is an intellectual pursuit. Most of the people that you hire are smart people. Whether they have emotional intelligence as well as raw intelligence, that maybe is open to question. Mm. But certainly, you can't invent a culture because people will see through that because it's not it's not genuine. So the culture gets built around. The founders, mm. and it's this is a ama- this is an amazing thing I learned about huge companies that the culture comes from the top, no matter how big the company. Mm. So you know, at Arcadia, we had forty five thousand people, but the culture came from the chief executive, and it's amazing how it pervaded all all the way through. Mm. So if the if your if you as a founder leader are comfortable with openness and you tend to err on the side of trust, then build those into your culture and make those a positive aspect of your of your business. Mm. If that's not how you feel, if you if you really feel that you uh, you need to hold things very, very tight, you're very afraid of leakage of information and, and, and so on. Mm. then you just got to build a tight uh, cadre of people around you with whom you, sh- you share. And uh, But if you're that kind of person, it'll take you time to trust those people. Mm. So I guess what I'm saying is know yourself mm-hmm. is the number one rule. Build your company culture around what you know about yourself. Mm-hmm. And that is like any company strategy. Build your strategy around your strengths and not mm-hmm. your weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But if we take that one step further, one could argue that that's exactly what the founder of Uber has done to date. And that hasn't played out well recently with all the stuff that's been going on. It's almost like the company's culture is an amplification of that. And maybe sort of put the ball back on your courts. Like if you were you know, on the board of, of, of Uber and you were giving advice to the founder on this, it's like how do you make a transition, not in all the elements that have made him knock down dominoes, to achieve what he's achieved, which is, that's worth noting. He's achieved quite a bit. But how do you temper that? How do you showcase that? How does, how, or, or how do you use parallels from leadership styles you've seen that have worked in, in sort of taking the best elements of a culture, but then kind of getting rid of the toxic ones? No, I think that's a, it's very topical, that, that particular subject. Now, I often think of John McEnroe as a, as a tennis player. I don't, you, you remember yeah, yeah. how he behaved? Yeah. yeah, scream and shout, throw his racket and so on. And a lot of people postulated, probably with some validity, that he, uh, without that, he wouldn't have been the great player that he was. And maybe this the same applies to Travis. And I don't, I don't know him, but everything I read makes me believe that he could never have built Uber to where it is if he didn't have these elements. So I think what his board needs to be, if it needs to do, is if that's what you're asking me, is to make him aware or raise his awareness of the pros and cons of of, of who he is. Mm. To say to him, you've got to change. You can't do this anymore. 
firstly, that's prescriptive. I don't believe in, in, in that approach anyway. But you're dealing with somebody with a huge intellect who, who rationally will understand the argument and then work on his own, on, on his own style. Mm. And, and it's been reported that he's, he's got, you know, he's, he's been coached and he's got mentors and so on. No doubt, you know, uh, boards have, uh, or in, investors or whomever he trusts. Mm. Trusts, again, that's mm. a key word. Mm. Uh, perhaps they are, uh, you know, they are nudging him in, in that direction. Mm. But, so, but don't go and destroy, you know, what is great. Mm. Like you implied, mm. recognize what is great and then, but equally recognize where, where, where this might be a liability. Mm. One of the interesting things about what you said is that you're, you're acknowledging the, the strengths and the weaknesses and aligning those with the business. And we call that internally here, founder market fit. You know, it's like, is this the right founder for that specific market, a specific company? When you started TAG, and with all the experience you had as, as a founder, um, were you was your original thesis around sort of identifying these these individuals that you had maybe seen in yourself or maybe the people you'd worked in, or was it more thesis driven? Like, oh, I think that you know Europe's going to need you know a, a, a very much the former, and and I, I like your uh, your uh, expression, uh, founder market fit. Um, it's, it's a great extension of product market fit, but. Um, no, very much the, the former for the simple reason, I guess, that, well, a number of reasons, that at the stage that we invest, um, the amount of due diligence you can do on, on the market and the, uh, on the, and the product, uh, and the metrics is relatively limited. And I think I would like to spend much more time getting to know the, the founders, because I think that is really where the heart of our decision making lies. And if you ask, well, how do I use my own experience for that? I suppose that I mean, the way I would encapsulate it is that having empathy for founders, because I've been in that position on a number of occasions and I know how hard it is, uh, gives gives me some idea of what I should be looking for. Most founders don't know how difficult it is going to be. You've read all the books, you've heard all the podcasts, and founders will tell you, successful founders will tell you, God, this was bloody hard. And yet, you never actually internalize that for yourself. Mm. You know, the, the loneliness mm. of, of the founders mm. sometimes, the, the pressure there's three months money left. Where's it going to come from? How am I going to face all these people who are working for me? These are real, real human problems that most founders have never been through before. Mm. I think if you have, and I, and I have, then that empathy helps to give me some insight into how people may behave under those circumstances. Mm. Do you remember the first investment uh, fondly that you made um, for, with TAG? Or was it one of those where you're like, you know what, in retrospect, I yeah. what I did wrong or that was too much <laughs> emotional or not too rational? or The first investments um, I made were uh, during the bubble. 
and made about seven investments, seven or eight investments. Lost all of them except one, which was lastminute.com. And if they hadn't uh, IPO'd at the last minute, (laughs) I would have lost the whole lot. And I said to Brent and Martha, it's thanks to them that I'm still in this business, I think. By the way, if the, for the audience, if you're interested more about the lastminute.com story, this is a plug for the podcast I did with Martha Lane Fox uh, only a few weeks ago. So if you want the details of that bit of the story, feel free to tune in there. Sorry, continue, Rob. Sorry. No, but, you know, if, if Last Minute hadn't been saved by their, their IPO, mm-hmm. I probably would have uh, looked at my portfolio and said, God, I've lost the whole lot. Mm-hmm. This is a crazy business to be in. And I don't think I had the the thesis around the individual to the same mm. extent. I mean, what I knew then was that the web was going to change the world. Yeah. I was a very early, you know, did the first e-commerce transaction. So I was much more thesis driven at that point. Mm. So I, I invested in what looked like really interesting business. It was a business called Green Fingers and, uh, you know, Think Natural and so on. These were like early e-commerce businesses, which... You know, if we could have done well now, could have done well, could have done well. Timing is everything. But on the timing point and on the valuation of the era and and the availability of capital in the era, because uh, Martha Lane Fox was telling me about sort of fundraising in that era and what was what it was like. One of the things that comes up more and more is is either a how much equity an investor should be taking, but I think that that's actually kind of a a, a cheap question because the real question really is. The ownership of, this, of, 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 of the founder and the investor has to be aligned with what the market support at an exit. So if you can't make the numbers work for an investor putting capital to exit, then it doesn't matter, right? And so if you have too high a stake, it's because usually you're compensating for lack of exits and you need to make up for a deadly portfolio. Or inversely, if you have not so much equity, it's because you believe that the, the, the ceiling can be very, very high, which is sometimes what you see in Silicon Valley with very large valuations because the public M&A market in the U.S. supports it. With your experience having seen the European ecosystem develop, where do you feel we are? You know, Having seen the first bubble pop, seen the second bubble pop, where do you feel we are in creating a sustainable M&A environment that allows for investors such as yourself to like make money no matter what the, the dynamics are in the United States and perhaps start aligning with that or do you see that we still have a lot more to go in terms of getting corporates interested in, in, in acquiring rather than, than building? Yeah, I think there are two areas where we're still lagging somewhat. Um, and that is um, acquisitions, M&A, by, mm-hmm. by corporates, and IPOs. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I think in all other respects, there is a lot of capital there's a tremendously supportive ecosystem mm-hmm. all the way from, you know, angels, EIS, uh, through uh, accelerators. And, you know, I mean, SeedCamp was transformational, I think, for, for the European mm-hmm. scene. And EF is doing great things mm-hmm. and there more and more funds being raised. There's no shortage there. Mm-hmm. But that, that capital will dry up or be unsuccessfully deployed if there if there are no e- exits of course there will be exits but if there if the volume of exits doesn't support mm-hmm. the size of the bottom of the pyramid mm-hmm. so i mean this is a thing that has concerned me for some time and uh 
you know, we've we've been pretty active in trying to uh, stoke the the IPO market, or we were sort of three, four, five years ago. Uh, whilst I was a uh, venture partner at Index, we had a big run at, with the help of uh, number 10, uh, with the LSE to uh, launch the high growth sector. And uh, there have been some terrific, uh, you know, outcomes, but they're still, we're still moving slowly up the, the education curve. Um, there's a lot of money in the City of London. It's an incredible stock exchange, but it still uh, doesn't know quite what to do with technology-enabled businesses. Mm. I think where we're at is um, Europe is producing a lot of very exciting technology-enabled businesses as opposed to technology businesses, and those are much easier for, for the city of London to understand. So I think we will see more and more of the Just Eats and the Zooplas, etc. Mm. Um, but uh, but M and A is still it's still weak. Mm. When so we when need to see more. When you're investing in the t- sort of few first tag investments, was the premise behind the exit mostly around the IPO, which last minute managed to achieve, and that was kind of the hope for the other seven. You, you know, our our, uh, our approach was never. Uh, never related to exit. Mm. Firstly, we were initially investing our own cash. Mm. So we had no need for exit. Our ambition was to help grow great companies Mm. and the rest would take care of itself. After all, I had sold a number of my own companies previously. So there was no fear that you couldn't sell a good business. Mm. So that's all we really wanted to do. Build a great business, exit will take care of itself. That's why not every business is suitable as a venture investment. So I think that uh, you, you know, we're patient investors. Um, today we run a fund and we've, you know, we're managing uh, LP's money. And uh, so exits do become important, but uh, we've, we've been careful to choose our, our investors in Local Globe uh, to ensure that they they do take a long view and they do understand that we invest at seed. We're still investors in Moo, for example. Mm-hmm. Fabulous company. And, uh, you know, it'll exit sometime. Uh, we're not, from our point of view, not putting particular pressure mm. uh, on them to do so. We wouldn't say no if... if you know, Richard and the team decided it was it was time, mm. or if they wanted to swap us for other shareholders, mm. like on an IPO or something, mm. we, we would we would be supportive. Mm. How do you feel about the criticism levied on European venture that, and it's kind of like the two sides of the same coin, is that that it just doesn't have the kinds of returns that it needs to have for the ecosystem to be really of note. And is that because there is no engineered uh, or push or, or maybe expectation setting with founders? Or, or inversely, is it that because there is so much expectation setting, there's so much pressure for exit that the founders are leaving? I, and, and I guess I just want to get your feeling as to where the, the chicken and egg problem starts. I think we're too early in the cycle to say that European venture is not delivering mm-hmm. the returns. Mm-hmm. I think you've... If you look at venture in the US, 
uh, where they're, I don't know, I don't have the numbers to hand, but mm-hmm. a thousand venture firms, mm-hmm. how many of them are delivering returns which investors find satisfactory? Mm-hmm. Satis- satisfactory. Mm-hmm. The top decile, the top mm-hmm. quartile. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot that aren't. So don't let's think we're behind in terms of returns. We don't, we don't know yet whether that's, uh, that's the case. Yeah. I mean, the venture firms that have been doing venture in the sort of West Coast style have only been around in Europe for, you know, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, I can only think of Index and, and Axel, and they've both produced good returns. So mm-hmm. uh, if you say... Well, Europe I happen to agree with you on this. Sorry? I'm, I'm biased, and I also happen to agree with you on this point, so... Well, I, I'd like to debate it with somebody who doesn't agree because, I, I, I mean, to say European venture is not producing the returns, I, I, don't, I think is a, is a false statement. Mm. What, what I think one can debate is uh, I don't think European venture will deliver the returns in the future because there are not enough exits. Mm. That is a thesis that has yet to be played out. Mm. I, I think, actually, that... Um, we would be no worse and maybe better than, than the US. When you take the venture market as a whole, mm. I think we might land up uh, delivering better returns uh, yeah, and, and, on average. And obviously, having myself in the industry 10 years now, you know, I have seen it mature in that way and seen the changes and the growth and the new capital and the new stories, you know, the transfer rises. The Zooplas, the Moos, and, and maybe this is a good point for you to share some of those great stories that you've been part of. I mean, you've had some amazing investments um, ranging from everything from Secret Escapes to Zoopla to Moo, as I mentioned, TransferWise, My Builder. Uh, some of these are seed camp companies, and, and thanks for co investing with us. Um, but maybe you can share some of the anecdotes uh, of, of sort of what it was like, you know, when you first met Chesterman, for example. Like, what, what was, was that like a yes, I, I know this is going to be successful? What was, in that case, absolutely yes, because we knew Alex from Love Film, mm-hmm. uh, from going further back still, uh, your Video Island, which, which all started, mm-hmm. which then merged with, C- uh, with Screen Select, which was Alex and William Reeves' business, with, and then merging with Love Film and, and so on. So knew, knew Alex and William extremely well, mm-hmm. absolutely known quantity. Um, and when, when he came along with his idea, it was a question of, this is Alex, we'll back him. Practically. He had to pivot his idea. So it, Alex tells his story. I mean, it's an, a remarkable story, by the way. This is an eight-year-old company, which is, uh, you know, worth uh, $2 billion. I don't know whether you talk dollars or pounds or you know, but dollars are always bigger so we tend to talk but it, you know the it's a 1.6 billion pound market cap started from scratch mm. eight years ago so he's a remarkable entrepreneur it wasn't that difficult to tell that he was going to be really successful mm. and that he would move the company to where it needed to be mm. to make it very successful mm. so the the business we backed was different from the business it is today mm-hmm. um but that's what you want. You want to see as an investor. You want to you, you want to back people who will figure it out. Who will not necessarily do a sharp pivot, but will tack, mm-hmm. you know, um, and course correct and reinvent uh, if necessary. Mm. But that, that's you know, it's easy 
sort of in the conversation to, to refer to it, you know, when the company is eight years old and doing really well. But the moment that conversation is happening, it doesn't always necessarily feel like it's inevitable that the company will succeed. And, you know, we've, we've had ongoing conversations with some of our companies about pivots and maybe not entire market pivots, but maybe product pivots or go-to-market pivots. How do you manage that? How do you advise founders to, to, to manage that? And how do you recommend for them to deal with their investors in in setting expectations in, in making sure that they don't um, maybe take too long but at the same time not not sort of shortcut that process of re-engaging with a customer and yeah. understanding that customer well you, you you're familiar with the process that we've developed at, at local globe but for the, for the listeners I'll quickly outline it we we have this uh, process which uh, we call a lab which is essentially a, a milestone meeting and when we first invest in a company at the time that we sign a, ter- a term sheet even before the legals are done we sit down we visualize what where that company needs to get to in order to do a great series a and remember our, our job is from that point to the series a and after that we expect our job to reduce or at least our our involvement to somewhat lessen. Um, so we th- th- these milestones are set out between ourselves and the company on a shared document and they they done by visualizing what is required to raise a great series A across four dimensions. Product market fit, team, growth and unit economics. So imagine a matrix of that. We set them down, we agree them, we use our experience to say, well, we think at Series A you'll need to be this, 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 this. Mm-hmm. And then we wind the clock back to 90 days. What should we have achieved in 90, 180, 270, etc.? That's a long answer to the short question of how do you determine that you need to pivot and how do you agree with the with the founders? I think when you sit down at 90 days and and none of those milestones have been hit or or one is remarkably off you have an open conversation and say guys you know what's happening here let's figure out what we're going to do about this and we don't sit on the other side of the table and wag our fingers and say get this right guys we sit on the same side and say we have a joint problem here we're not hitting these milestones. Were they too ambitious? Are they the wrong milestone? Mm. Or do we have to course correct? Mm. And I think by having that conversation every 90 days, mm. the smart founders come to the right conclusions. They don't have to be forced. They can see this isn't going to happen. So, you know, they either, they either at that point say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. We'll get a Series A away with a great investor despite not hitting these milestones. Mm. Or they say, we do have to make some changes here. Mm. So it worked out for Alex then. I take it he went through that, came out the other end uh, very he, well. He did that pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think the the investors uh, and I, uh, the the main investor at that point was Atlas. Mm. Um, you know, after the C, C round, were were very good about uh, supporting uh, Alex and and saying, you know, if you if you want to persist with, uh, you, you know, with peer to peer, we'll we'll support you, but we don't think this is the right the right direction to go. Mm. That's as I remember it. This was some time ago, and uh, but Alex is very decisive 
um, you know, he's thoughtful but decisive uh, founder who uh, came to the right decision. On, on the decisiveness and on the back to sort of maybe using Travis as a scapegoat instead of picking on Alex or anybody else, it's like, how do you, how do you manage um, the decisiveness of a founder's strategy? And you kind of alluded to your philosophy with regards to being a passenger in the sort of the founder's journey, but how do you, how do you course correct? You know, how, how do you, you know, in your experience and the experience of other mentors around it, how do you push to the limit without crossing that line that you've drawn? In your values, is it just ongoing conversations? It's ongoing, honest conversations. Because sometimes it's really hard to. There's some hard things. It it could be that uh, I'll give an example without mentioning mm-hmm. names because it would be wrong. Mm-hmm. But there's a company that we're invested in where uh, we where we sit down with the founders on a regular basis. And our sense was that things were not working between the founders and one of them was quite disruptive. We felt decisions weren't being made. Mm-hmm. And um, it, was, it was really just a question, not of pointing a finger at that person, but sitting down with the CEO, because someone has to be the CEO, and creating an environment. This was just one-to-one, because this is the only way I think it can be done, just me and him. And just asking some leading questions. How are things working out at the moment? I, you know, the team gelling, you know, just leading questions and just keep asking the questions because I know the answer. The answer is you've got a, you've got a team member who's not pulling any weight, but I'd much rather just ask the questions and have the CEO say, well, I'm having real problems with X. And didn't take too many questions. And because we're not sitting in a big meeting, it's just the two of us, for him to say, I'm really having a problem. And, the, and, and, and then, you know, a few questions later, what, what is the impact on the rest of the business? How is it impacting on you? And then having him talk and then me saying, you know, we've, we've noticed that, just reinforces a decision that he's been, you know, mulling over and over and over and just been distracted from the business because he's been thinking about all of this. And, you know, me saying to him, look, it's okay, this happens. This happens in other businesses. Um, and have you come to a decision about what you should do about it? He said, well, I'm, you know, I'm getting close to it and so on. And, you know, this conversation obviously makes it easier for me. Then there's the question, okay, how do we, how do, we do this? You know, he's never done it before. We've been through it before. I've been on the receiving end of it, as I said, was fired. Mm. So I, I can, you know, mm. take him through. And we did it. It was painful mm. and cost a bit. The company is now moving forward. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a whole new energy in the, in the, in the business. Mm. Well, I mean, that's, I think, part of the legacy that people um, refer to when they talk about you behind your back positively. They always speak very kindly about that kind of honesty and transparency that you bring to conversations. And you know, you've, you've done that not only as a founder, you've done that as an investor over multiple funds. You know, we didn't really talk too much about index and, and you know, tag and now, of course, local globe. And to some extent, you know, you've done a lot of other altruistic things. What's, what's next for Robin Klein? What's, what's the next thing? You've done so much. 
Well, local globe is very new. So, you know, I, I, outside of local globe, I've, I've got other activities, but as far as my professional career is concerned, I, local globe is very much work in progress. Mm. So I know at, at my age, you'd expect me to say, it, you know, it's nearly done and I'll, I'll, I'll move on. But it's two years old, the, 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 the fund itself. Local Globe has been investing as Local Globe since 2004, I think, mm. maybe earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always existed. We've just never surfaced it. It's on lots of cap tables. Mm. So Zoop, Libmu, all of those has all got Local Globe, but it'd be Local Globe 2 or 3 or uh, whatever. So we're, we're, we've just finished raising Local Globe 8. Mm. It's only our second multi-institutional fund and we we have to transition this fund from brand climb to brand local globe because our intention is to build something to last last beyond me last beyond Saul so you know what's next is to to really build a you know a great team mm-hmm. and a great uh, firm that uh, is a force for the ecosystem and that maintains the position that I hope we hold which is as a as a leading seed investor in the in the ecosystem mm. so I hope that answers the question it does answer the question all right last question then we look back now at slavery and are appalled and shocked what will people look back on us 50 years from now and think wow these guys did that. I think if you're referring to like society, I'll give you a free one: ecology, <laughs> economy, politics, I th- I populism. Think we're dealing with some enormous challenges, and we we collectively within our industry see the world through a particular lens. We're excited as hell by the changes that are going to come about through technology. Mm. And we look back over the last 20 years and the changes are like unbelievable. And I've referred to some, some of them in the earlier part of the talk. But um, I, I think the consequences of technology are not understood by society as a whole. Mm. I think we make a bad mistake if we think we within the technology sector have all the answers and you know we're complacent about it because we know how to control all of this and so the fact is a lot of people are going to lose jobs over the next number of years and society really going to have to uh, deal with it. I hope that people will look back and say we managed this well but I fear that we are living through another iteration of the industrial revolution Mm -hmm. and not all of that was good and I, I think it's going to take an enormous you know, political will for us to do this, to do this right. Um, and I suppose uh, that, that would be my fear. I'm, but I'm, I'm not certain that people will look back and say it was bad. Mm. But I think there's, there's, a, there's a high probability that, uh, that it will. No, it's very insightful. Thanks for joining us, Robin. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.